Okay, so I have here with me Georgia Pavlopoulou from the University or University College London. Yes. Uh, and she is an expert in uh, sleeping issues among autistic people and also uh, sibling well-being, uh, siblings of autistic people and, the, and their well-being. Is that right? Have I got that right? Yes, not an expert, still learning, but I'm lucky <laughs> enough to work with experts and uh, I'm learning a lot from experts in UCL and experts by experience, all the autistic people we're working with. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. So today we're going to talk about uh, sleeping issues among autistic people and the perhaps a bit about, you know, uh, what those issues are and, and what the some of the risk factors are maybe and uh, also uh, the impact this has upon well-being I should also mention of course we have on the other line uh, Kieran Curry who's also joining the interview who is of course our fellow charity trustee how are you doing Kieran I'm doing well very well thank you Chris hello everyone thanks for joining us Kieran that's great uh, so yes this this is going to be about sleep which of course is a very uh, big issue uh, in uh, the autism world and I'm hoping that this conversation has some uh, uh, usefulness, I'm sure it will, for our listeners. So shall we crack on, on to question one? Uh, and that is just firstly if you could tell us how you entered the world of autism and autism research because of course you are a mm-hmm. researcher aren't you? Yeah, yes. uh, it's a great pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Uh, so I started, uh, my relationship with autism is mostly professional. I started in uh, early 2000 uh, working with families uh, with autistic children. And it was uh, the first few years I started doing research on early intervention and different ways mothers interact with their autistic children and how we can promote better communication skills, language. Uh, at the same time, I started working a lot um, in psychoeducational clinics, in therapy. Uh, I was trained in different types of interventions, from very behavioral to very interactional. Uh, and the past uh, 17, 18 years, I have been witnessing, through my work with autistic people, the opportunities and the challenges uh, to engage all family members uh, and to empower all family members into what we're doing, into, into therapy, into improving the quality of life. Mm. Uh, so that has been my main <clears throat> inspiration as I was working as a scientific director in a mental health unit uh, for autistic people and their families. I started realizing that uh, we, we, we do not include autistic people in our decision making as mm. much as we should. Uh, and very often when we talk about uh, family interventions, family-centered interventions, very often we just mean the mom and the child, the, the mom and the autistic child coming in the clinic uh, and training the mom as co-therapist uh, instead of um, embracing all family and the views of all families mm. and, uh, and working with them instead of working on them. Mm. Uh, so during that period I was working with families, I started thinking... I started hearing in psychoeducational groups with parents and counseling sessions about the other child, the mm. sibling. Mm. Uh, and that was the main inspiration for me to start my PhD, looking at the potentiality of sibling relationships for the well-being of both autistic and typically developing siblings. Uh, and that started in a time that the literature we had in terms of family well-being was very much uh, focusing on the deficits of autism. Uh, And there is a long history of medical research around um, how difficult and how bad it can be if you have an autistic family member uh, in terms of well-being. So there was um, lots of research focusing on the negative Mm -hmm. aspects. Uh, And I was wondering, uh, so when when I started thinking of PhD, um, having read all these uh, medicalized type of research, I was thinking, I'm going to think and invent an intervention. And then I was like, but intervene on what? I don't even know what does it mean to be a sibling of an autistic person. I don't know how autistic people experience siblinghood. So I stepped back after a few months and I'm like, no, I'm not going to do an intervention. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with siblings to understand their relationships, their perspectives, their experiences and their needs. 
There was no kids to. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're saying what you're saying because uh, being a researcher also, I recognise and understand the crucial value uh, of understanding the, theory, the actual theory, the theoretical space before you can design an intervention. And what I mean by that is, you, you know, it's really crucial that you understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, so what mm-hmm. are the issues? What are the concepts? How do they uh, connect with each other? And the best way or one of the key ways uh, of, of doing that is to get the input from all of the key people, right? I mean, if you get as much data from as many different angles as possible, and that data, of course, is reliable and, and useful and reasonable, then you, you've got more to play with and your, your theoretical grounding is going to be stronger, isn't it? And then from that, you are then able to design perhaps potentially... An intervention, although I'm not even sure intervention is the right word anymore. Yeah. But um, the point is that you you can't just jump into an intervention. And by by intervention, I think we should probably say because I think most listeners, I mean, they we're going to have a mixture of listeners that some people understand that's a bit of a technical term, but some people might not. You'd be used to that term. But I think what you mean and what we're saying is that some sort of uh, activity or yeah, some some sort of something that they're not getting that might help them something that we think and this should be based on science and theory right this is what you're saying and and so therefore it's crucial to value but it's interesting that you say that you know in your experience that when you were working with various families that you this really struck a chord with you right that you saw that the professionals that you're working with and the settings that you're working within uh were very much top down in that they were they were kind of taking a it was about what they think predominantly or exclusively as opposed to valuing or listening what is that about is that um is that uh a a, a cultural thing in terms of um in terms of the medical space is that a medical is that something that the medical world in terms of medical clinical work is that a problem inherent to them or a particular problem for them or is it something that we all struggle with and what's your view why are we doing that why aren't we just isn't it an obvious thing that we all just should just listen to each other and and value that and then learn from that but it doesn't happen does it what why is that you think i guess uh it's it's a comfort thing as well i realized Mm. after a few years uh, for me especially in the beginning it was a comfort thing to uh, to call myself an expert and right. to present myself as an expert, especially when um, families uh, families sometimes reaching a crisis point, which in many cases is not related to the uh, to the disability, it's not related to autism, but is related to lack of resources, lack of social support, stigma, all mm. all, all this mm. kind of stuff. So, so the comfort thing is so interesting. So. So what you're saying is maybe it's a power thing, right? It's yeah. definitely a power so thing. So it's, it's a play on, comf- on power as yeah. a means to comforting perhaps your own yeah. identity. In order to listen to all this, it means that you need to be prepared to, uh, to listen to new things that you might have not thought of, that you might not even know how to deal. Uh, and it's about uh, opening your perspective, opening our perspectives and uh, recognizing the people that we're working with as experts by experience uh recognizing their needs and also it's, it's about what you said earlier as the, the obvious thing is to work together and to, to find appropriate types of support and, and that uh, apart from being scientifically very very good practice to co-produce goals or to co-produce research uh, it also means that we give a chance to autistic people and their families to to set an agenda with us and uh, to, to, to get results towards the direction, their preferred direction. So do you want to talk about your, your, how you've done that since, since we're talking about participatory mm-hmm. approaches? What, what, what have you done for, for the, in this way? So uh, I, I got uh, familiar with some community-based participatory approaches through my PhD while I was working with siblings. Mm. And this is when I started becoming aware of the sleep issues and the impact mm. on family experience. Siblings talked a lot about uh, night awakings, uh, sleep disruptions, uh, because of the fact that their brother or sister would not sleep well. Uh, and also I had already started experiencing um, the challenges of how do we address sleep problems in, our, in, in my clinical practice 
where I sleep problems are very often not recognized as a fundamental issue. We rarely ask mm. parents, um, so how's your child's sleep or the autistic person, so right. how do you sleep? Mm. Uh, it's one of the last things we ask. And sometimes in my experience, when I'm asking parents, so what about sleep? Uh, like you're asking about diet, what about diet, what about sleep? Many times families will say, uh, yeah, it's going well. And sometimes they're only saying that if you if you start asking more questions and you unpack it, uh, you find out that the child is sleeping with mom in her bed for 15 years, 12 years, but it's something they're kind of used to it, uh, or, there's, or there's lack of sleep hygiene, or they're, sleep, or they're surviving with four hours of sleep. But it's something that because it has been almost forever in the family, uh, they, they, and it's very much connected with learning, with memory, with uh, uh, daytime functioning. Uh, sometimes families might complain about stuff that are happening, behavioral or learning stuff mm. that are happening during the day. And consequences. It's yes, mm. the consequences. And mm. it's hard to connect that back to the root of, mm. oh, maybe that's happening because I'm not sleeping very mm. well. Maybe mm. that's happening to my child because he's not sleeping very well. What is, what is good sleep? Maybe it would be helpful if you define, because you said the word sleep hygiene. Now, what does that mean, sleep hygiene? Because, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but I understand that you have, you know, what's called deep sleep and uh, sleep efficiency and sleep onset latency. I mean, what, what's good? Maybe just a basic, you know, uh-huh. what is good sleep hygiene, perhaps? Or is there a universal good sleep hygiene? Or does it, is it dependent on the individual? Or is there... Obviously, we have a sa- sa- circadian rhythm, don't yes. we? Maybe you should explain what that is as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So we do have circadian rhythm and that is uh, located in the brain Uh, and it's really related to our biological clock. Uh, So it's responding to the light cues uh, and it's it's helping us to product the melatonin uh, in Mm -hmm. the night time and then melatonin is switching off as the light comes. Um, So sleep is the primary activity of the brain. If you think about it, we sleep one third of our lives and as... um, as soon as we're born, we're spending most of our time, up to 16 hours, we're sleeping. Uh, so unless sleep is useful, there must be something wrong with nature. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There are so many things are happening. Our body, uh, many body functions are repaired and restored. There's lots of um, memory consolidation, emotional consolidation happening during our sleep. Um, So what is sleep hygiene? What what does that mean then? Yes, uh, sleep hygiene. uh, I mean, it should be ideally very much individualized, although there are some rules. There are some rules in terms of sleep hygiene uh, in relation to exposure to light, for example, Mm. in relation to the sleeping environment, the temperature uh, of of our room uh, or some uh, thinking habits or sleep habits. Uh, I think it's very much individualized, though, especially if we're talking for people with developmental conditions or autistic people. So, Georgia, just to interject, just and to go back to what you were saying earlier about um, uh, sleep being a very kind of core issue for families with autistic children or children with other um, kind of developmental difficulties. I mean, certainly it speaks to my experience with my son, is that um, up until the point... He was a very good sleeper as he was a young child, but up until the point that um, he stopped, um, we were able to function pretty well. um, And a lot of his needs weren't, his kind of sensory needs and emotional needs weren't as heightened as they were um, as soon as the sleep deprivation kicked in. So it was really kind of like a starting point for our own journey into looking for interventions and things like that. So sleep kind of triggered that. Um, and, uh, and I wondered if we could just just generally, I mean, clearly that won't be an isolated experience for you. I'm sure you've had many parents come to you um, talking about other behavioural issues which, become to, which begin to become problematic for their child and for them, um, and that actually sleep is at the root cause of that. Um, and what do you notice in terms of the, the difference between, say, a neurotypical child's sleep issues um, and those of a, an autistic child or adult, how do you, is there a consistency in how they present themselves in terms of the difference between the two? Thank you. It's, it's very, very interesting. So I have been working at Lila's uh, lab uh, with our director, Dagmara Dimitriou, 
Maybe <laughs> maybe just mention what the Lilas Lab is. What it, yes. Yeah. Uh, so Lifespan Learning and Sleep Laboratory at UCL. Uh, so uh, with our director, Dagmara Dimitriou, she has done for the last 15 years extensive, uh, lots of research looking at comparing uh, typically developing children, autistic children, children with all the syndromes. Uh, and what we're really trying to look at is um, uh, phenotypic sleep profiles. We know that um, autistic people are from, there's a very, very high percentage from 40 to 86% uh, struggle with sleep. They struggle to fall asleep. They struggle to stay asleep. Uh, and uh, even if they have um, slept, uh, when they wake up, uh, they it has to do with the quantity and the quality of sleep. They mm. wake up and they still say, I feel knackered, I feel tired, mm. I haven't slept well, mm. my body aches. Um, so That's what I was saying before about sleep hygiene, mm-hmm. right? I mean, deep sleep. Sometimes I, I mean, just speaking just from personal experience, sometimes I'll have a long, a comparatively longer sleep, but I'll feel tired, more tired because I haven't had as much deep sleep. At least that's what my, my watch is saying because my watch tells me roughly how yeah. much deep sleep. So, so deep, it's, deep sleep does count, doesn't it? It's not just length of sleep. Right, yes, is that right? Or, yes, we have mm. we have uh, different stages, uh, and it's about uh, the cycles of sleep as well, mm. if you complete them or not. Uh, so what we have been doing in our lab is uh, looking at uh, uh, both the quantity and the quality. Right. Uh, so um, it's very good that you mentioned that all the data you get from your watch is uh, is is giving roughly. you a rough yeah. idea. Uh, yeah, yeah, roughly it shows what's happening because in reality um in lab uh, in our lab we have really expensive active watches mm. uh that they can give you lots of detail around um exactly how yes yeah. how deep you're sleeping uh sleep fragment so you asked me earlier at uh, sleep latency uh, it's how much time it takes you to fall asleep and we know that most autistic uh, people um struggle with uh, sleep latency it takes them loads of time um, Kieran mentioned other differences. Um, thinking of uh, our current research with uh, autistic and typically developing teenagers, um, some of the differences we have seen is that uh, typically developing teenagers, they also actually don't sleep very well. Um, uh, sleep issues are becoming more and more common and that's related to the environment to, to, to the lifestyle and this is very much related to the sleep hygiene aspect you mentioned uh, and we can find lots of solutions when we're talking about typical population your typical people are in the sleep hygiene however uh, our impression for the bo- from the body of work we have started doing now is that sleep hygiene um, Autism Speaks has uh, released uh, a, a, a big guidance around autistic teenagers and how they could uh, improve their sleep hygiene. And it's all about scheduling, uh, have a bath, do your puzzle, go to bed. That doesn't necessarily, in my experience, work with uh, autistic teenagers uh, because they do have uh, very individualized interests. Uh, also, they do have sensory difficulties that typically developing people might not have, for example. Um, and so what we're trying to do is to look phenotypic sleep profiles and how they might implicate different pathways to, to, to the sleep differences that we have seen. Um, so it's really interesting, I mean, mm-hmm. what, what you're saying. I thought one of the most interesting things you said is that uh, and I think very important that you say this is that yes it's true that autistic people uh, have a, um, a particularly high risk of poor sleep I think there's been some research that shows that at mm-hmm. least twice as more likely to have sleeping issues however that's not to say that the typically developing children and the neurotypical adults don't have sleeping issues and actually the research shows that a lot of people have a lot of sleeping issues generally it's just that it's I think the research tends to show that there are perhaps unique risk factors or the same risk factors among autistic people, but they're more heightened. So one thing I think is, um, for example, I think maybe if you clarify if you agree or what you think, but um, I think that mental health plays a big part in sleep, you know. Yeah. Uh, so and this is why I think it's interesting that you said that all, all many, many children and many young people, many people generally have sleeping issues, because I think it represents the fact 
Oh, it's a sort of it's a sign, let's say, that uh, 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 of of poor mental health happening among populations across the board. I mean, children in the UK, for example, we know that young children are having high, very high rates of poor mental health. PTSD is is higher than ever, mm-hmm. and of course, if you have a bad anxiety, you have PTSD and uh, other mental health problems then I would have thought that that would impact upon enormously upon sleep and then of course if you have bad sleep that then feeds back into the poor mental health so it's a a vicious uh, it's a bit of a vicious cycle right Uh, and just to say one one more thing in that I think this again shows perhaps if you agree how bad and how vulnerable autistic people's mental health is you know so if mental health is a risk factor uh, for everyone and autistic people are having particularly bad sleep. Well, that's very telling in that it again shows and and supports the evidence that we see from other research that unfortunately young autistic people and autistic people generally have very, very poor mental health for various reasons. But of course mental health is not the only mm-hmm. thing, is it? But would you what do you think about all that? Am I am I would you agree with that or uh, yes, lots of interesting points. So uh, one key issue, as you said, is not just their sleep hygiene, but sleep hygiene, mostly women, the environment. When we think of sleep, it's very important, of course, to think of the environment, but also to think of the diet, to think of the levels of exercise. To And then the mental health part comes when we're thinking about it's related to our thoughts, um, helpful and unhelpful thoughts uh, before we go to bed. Uh, anxiety, depression definitely are linked and there's still ongoing research and debates about what is causing what to find you know, the causal relationships, mm. what is predicting what. Yeah. Uh, there is uh, a body of research, uh, again there are some debates, but there is a body of research that says that uh, people with fragmented sleep who wake up very often in the night uh, might have higher levels of depression, whereas people who have uh, on sleep latency, so that means that it takes them more time to fall asleep. Um, they are more prone to anxiety, or they have already anxiety. Mm. So it's a complicated uh, picture, then. Yes, mm. yes, it's very hard to give uh, very clear answers mm. at that point mm. because there are a few debates. Mm. Um, one of the things that we cannot debate is definitely that uh, there is uh, behaviors, uh, uh, environment thinking, mental health, all these are related to, to sleep, the mm. quality and the quantity of sleep. Uh, and, uh, the, we ha- and, and thinking of the importance, so you asked me earlier, what is good sleep? Uh, some people say that they thrive with four or five hours. Some people say I need eight, nine hours. Uh, there are guidelines, uh, for example, that we need to sleep about eight to ten hours, ideally. Uh, and we do know what is happening to us. I mean, the importance of sleep is easy to state it, thinking what is happening to us when we don't sleep. Um, so we know that there is a number of issues. For example, phys- in terms of physical health, we have higher blood pressure. Uh, we are more prone to fall sick. In terms of mental health, uh, it exaggerates uh, anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. symptoms. I've read that it also impacts upon unemployment as well, poor sleep. Yes. That, that of course unemployment is a is a crucial thing for everyone. I mean, sorry, employment uh, is a uh, crucial yeah. thing for everyone. <laughs> yes, uh, well, nowadays and... employment as well for some people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's related to their anxieties. Right. I right. mean, it can be the perfect um, the perfect recipe mm. sometimes for an insomnia week. Uh, it's Sunday morning and you're catching up from the sleep that you didn't have, so you're kind of disturbing your circadian rhythm. Uh, you're, you're not keeping on a schedule, you're, so you're, you're, you're sleeping more um, Sunday morning, uh, so your sleep drive is going lower that day, so you're going to sleep a bit later anyways, and then anxiety, work-related anxiety comes, mm. uh, or sleep-related anxiety. Sometimes people are worried because they know that, oh, I can't sleep right now, oh, I'm going to be tired tomorrow, you know, it, it, it. Mm, you see, it's everything is linked, isn't it? Yes. Everything, but sleep for me. I mean, whether or not I don't know if you what your view of this is, but it seems to be a a really good medicine if if we can get it. You know, what I mean, it really kind of glues your day together if you're uh, if you can get it. The problem is that everything impacts upon it, right? There's all these various yeah. risk factors. So you have the uh, whatever your anxieties may be, you have other mental health issues. 
Uh, and of course, with autistic people, we have sensory issues as well, mm-hmm. don't you? Mm-hmm. Is, is there is that is that is that right? Is there a link with is sensory the sensory world a key risk factor for poor sleep among autistic people? Is this one of the reasons why perhaps they have uh, uh, particularly uh, prop, big problems with sleep, uh, whereas neuro- neurotypical? A population perhaps don't so much. I mean, obviously they do, but yeah. not. Is this one of the things that stands them out a little bit more? Autistic people, the sensory issues. Back to the fir- yes, and this is one of the aspects we're looking at in the research we're doing now with Dagmar Dimitri and Richard Mills, looking at teenagers' sleeps uh, and how they sleep. We do have lots of research showing that autistic people don't sleep well. However, we haven't had yet uh, their personal accounts on sleep. What are the stuff that are helping them to sleep, to fall asleep? Uh, and what are the stuff that uh, are, are keeping them awake? So the research we're doing now, with, um, funded by Jordan and Lorna Wing Foundation, um, and talking about participatory ways of research earlier, we're trying to blend our knowledge uh, and expertise in sleep science uh, with uh, what autistic people know about themselves and, and how sleep works for them. Um, <clears throat> so in terms of sleep hygiene and sensory issues there are so many mm-hmm. links uh, and my impression so far is uh, that uh, autistic people understand their sensory profiles very well especially te- verbal teenagers uh, and they're very able to accommodate that however they might not be uh, very able yet to control uh, anxiety thoughts or, uh, you know, sometimes during night time, they might think too much of what has happened during that day at school, for example, uh, and, uh, or thinking what's going to happen the next day at school, because that plays a huge role. Yeah. Uh, and that is moving the conversation uh, the, the way I see it right now with our preliminary data, is moving the conversation from uh, pure sleep hygiene and environment into what is happening during the daytime. Very often, because sleep is happening at the nighttime, uh, um, naturally we're thinking, what can we do during nighttime to improve? Uh, but I think uh, in the case of uh, autism, it would be very, very useful thinking of all the anxieties, all the sensory issues, to consider what can we do as well during daytime. Georgia, everything you're saying makes absolute sense. Um, um, I mean, in two ways. First, the point you made about autistic um, people being able to understand the what accommodations work for them at night and what doesn't, because one size doesn't fit all. I mean, we, I was discussing it with a, a friend recently, my, my son's own profile, and you go through, it's like you go through mindfulness, you go through the weighted blankets, you, you know, you consider melatonin, you go through all these things, but only the same thing won't work for every child. Um, and certainly my son is much more vocal about what doesn't work now um, because he's, his imperative is actually to get sleep. He can see how it impacts him the next day if he hasn't slept. It's not necessarily driven by us kind of forcing a good quality of sleep. He, he feels it himself and therefore is much more willing to point out what works and what doesn't work. Um, but the second point you were making about relating back to what has happened during the day and how the general, um, what you are thinking about at that point of sleep, um, you know, what is going through your mind, um, which inevitably relates back to what has occurred during the day and what you've had to deal with, how that plays such a crucial role. We've often found within our family, certainly, that what has worked for my son has been a bit of a debrief of the day um, being able to talk about what has happened. And, um, you know, we're very lucky that he's able to do that. Um, but certainly, for, for I can imagine, for, for those in the autistic community, ch- children and adults, who, who find, would find it difficult at that point to express exactly what is going on, it's almost like needing to have a mini therapy session before you in, embark on trying to sleep, um, how that is quite crucial and um, if the opportunity for that is limited, that would really impact on the quality of sleep you're getting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that makes absolute sense to me. And so, just practically speaking, um, what it clearly is, the approach has to be very individual and unique to the person who's experiencing the sleep issues. Um, 
what would you suggest would be a start point for kind of any parent or autistic person who's really struggling at the moment? Uh, what would be a start point for them in terms of evaluating their own sleep? Yes, so um, I, I think at the minute uh, we are, uh, from the stuff that we're learning from the autistic people we're working with, um, very much has to do, as you also confirmed, with school-related anxiety, bedtime use of video game networking, sensory difficulties, uh, sleep hygiene routines. And as you said, many autistic people know already what they need to do, but there is an aspect as well of self-blame. Uh, for example, many autistic teenagers are using um, their devices uh, not to be in social media like typical developing um, teenagers might do, but just to unwind their mind by watching the favorite videos or being in a group that they talk about their very the, the, the things that they're very passionate about. I've met a young man that he, every night before he was going to bed, as he said in the interview, uh, he was going into this uh, group, and it was mostly autistic people in this group, and they were talking about Piccadilly Line. And what's going to happen in Piccadilly Line the next day, uh, and how Piccadilly Line runs—very useful information. Uh, and that, uh, and he also had um, bed sits with uh, London tube uh, connections, you know, all the stops. Uh, and he had a calendar full of trains, and these were the kind of stuff that they were helping him to fall asleep. But he was uh, very worried that he's uh, breaking a rule, a sleep hygiene. So every time he was uh, he was connected with that group for a while before he was going to bed, um, he, he could unwind his mind and fall asleep much easier. However, sometimes he was very worried uh, because he had read in the newspapers that we should not use uh, tablets and other technology before bedtime. So he was very, very worried about breaking that rule. And this self-blame, again, was generating unhelpful thinking that was keeping him awake. So I think the first step is um, if, you know, uh, GP should be the first uh, point of uh, reaching help and asking for help. Uh, there are really good sleep clinics. There are really good charities that nowadays have sleep professionals. Um, who are well trained to 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 work with uh, children and their families with neurodevelopmental okay. conditions. Uh, we do know that sometimes um, there is too much uh, thinking uh, and dealing around the behavioral aspect of sleep. Interestingly, um, a year ago I was at the World Sleep Conference, uh, and uh, there was very little things mentioned about autism and when autism was mentioned it was mentioned as a sleep problems were very much mentioned as a behavioral deficit problem as if autistic people just don't listen to the rules and they don't go to bed which was Wow. Very, very upsetting to yeah. hear that. Um, and, you know, I'm, 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 I'm very new into the sleep uh, research, uh, but uh, I can understand that that's not the case. Uh, and um, I started talking about this in social media and with autistic people in, in autistic groups, uh, and that generated lots of discussions. For one, uh, Problems in terms of sleep are only there's very much a focus in services and in research uh, in childhood, uh, and that's a general thing in autism. We talk a lot about children, but not we don't necessarily think of across the lifespan. So lots of autistic adults responded to that and said, "Well, uh, we're not uh, just breaking a rule. We're not we're not having behavioral issues. We just can't fall asleep." We need, we need help. We need help to fall asleep. And also they, were, they mentioned, uh, they came out very strongly saying, and what about us? That we're not children, that we're not teenagers. Uh, and that created, um, uh, a momentum was really created online. Uh, and we decided that, uh, okay, let's do something about it. Let's start, let, let's meet, let's see what's the issue. So that stimulated a number of discussions um, in our research team at UCL uh, and uh, we, we worked for almost, uh, this is the time when I started getting lots of emails and messages from autistic adults saying, what about us? And they started sharing their sleep stories, which was mostly stories about, uh, uh, it takes me many hours to fall asleep or asleep only three or four hours. 
uh, and that stimulated uh, a research interest for us as well. To we checked that the literature there's not much research. Um, the sleep research we have at the minute, uh, we have small numbers, uh, not many controlled trials. Uh, there is some research showing that melatonin might help, but then again, not everyone and not all the different uh, sleep difficulties that a person might uh, have. Uh, so we definitely need more research. And uh, our adult sleep research was very much stimulated and driven by the autistic community. It was very interesting. Uh, so we said, okay, there's a clear need for sleep research. What do we do? And this was the time when we thought uh, there are so many different questions, but which are, which ones are really relevant to autistic people? What autistic people and their families would like to know about their sleep? And this is how we managed to have it, to run a survey. So we do know now the priorities of the sleep priorities of autistic people in the UK, and we are ready to start working with the adults as well that's brilliant i mean that's the way of collaborating with a community that kind of is is asking for help but isn't being satisfied by the kind of general advice out there because it doesn't really speak to their own experience um i think that's wonderful i agree and it's just so interesting that i mean there's so many interesting points there i mean one let's start with this one is that you said that there's not been a lot of research in sleep and and i just think that's absolutely uh, really problematic and very indicatory of of underlying issues the fact that there hasn't been uh, much research in in sleep because we know we've known forever that sleep is a crucial thing for our health and our well-being and that we've known for a long time that uh, lots of people struggle with it, so it, it should. It seems obvious that we should have. We should have had uh, a priority of understanding what constitutes good good sleep, how we can improve good sleep among everybody, including autistic people, for a long time. And the fact that there isn't, for me, suggests that we again going back to what you said earlier that we haven't been listening very well to the autistic community and those people that do uh, struggle with sleep, and that. Uh, if we had, presumably, this would have come out, this would have been highlighted earlier, dealt with earlier, and we'd be much further in the game than what we are today. Uh, and that's a real shame because your, your work is highlighting quite clearly how crucial this is for the agenda, the research agenda among autistic people now. But it, there's no reason why it needed to be so late. It could have been a long time ago that we, mm-hmm. this was on the agenda. But of course, it wouldn't have been had we not because it depends on us going out there and listening and valuing. So again, it goes back to your point about really valuing what your, the community and the, the population are trying to help, uh, what they want, you know. Maybe what you think they want isn't what they yeah. want, you know. And so if, you know, if this had happened earlier, we would have had a, uh, I, w- I think we would have had more research by now. I think we've all lost because of that. There is sleep research, and we, ha- in a sense, that we do have now evidence. We know how important is sleep, uh, and we know what's happening to us when we don't sleep. Uh, and this has been well established. I give you an example. Uh, for example, uh, Dagmara Dimitriou, two years ago, she published a paper looking at the different ways that uh, sleep uh, might work for children with ADHD and for typically developing children. And for typically developing children that they would not sleep well, um, uh, their daytime behavior was mimicking. uh, They almost had ADHD traits because of the lack of sleep. So there's so it's there's really correlating. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, the the importance has been established, but in terms of autism research, we don't know what works. We don't have strong evidence. Uh, around the effectiveness or on approaches or on diet or on yeah. all So because we don't yeah. have, we haven't had exactly. many trials. Yeah, we yeah. haven't had many trials. Mm-hmm. And probably the, one of the reasons we haven't had many trials to establish what works and what's helpful is because the agenda, the priority exactly. on sleeping research has been a bit late coming into the game. There ha- of course has been uh, studies that have, very important studies that have come along mm-hmm. here and there. But the... The, the, the body, the size of the body of research is much smaller than other areas because perhaps we didn't listen as much as we should have mm-hmm. to the value, the agenda of the autism community, right? Yeah, Definitely. so it's great that you're doing that. 
and I call for everyone really to be doing that. Why not? Right? We should be listening to those who who are trying to help and valuing what they want, and then uh, uh, tailoring our research accordingly or producing new research accordingly. But the other really interesting thing that you said was that you went to that conference and that they blamed autistic people for poor sleep. You know that they mm-hmm. they put it on them that they don't follow the rules of good sleep hygiene or whatever it is Mm -hmm. Uh, and I just think that again really does reflect quite clearly the stigma attached to autistic people I mean you get it from all sections of society and in this case that is a clear example of it coming from the professionals uh, community let's say the professional side uh, stigma from them so I mean that is just unbelievable isn't it And, uh, and I think that stigma if it doesn't if we don't address it it can can continue to pervade prof- professionals' approach and their thinking and their and and their clinical work and their practice. And instead of perhaps thinking about what Kieran was saying, tailored individual approaches that are reasonable and evidence based, and there's no one size fits mm-hmm. all thing. Uh, rather than that kind of healthy view, they might be thinking quite negatively and uh, wrongly about what the what the issues are because of the stigma and their negative perceptions of autistic people so it really translates all over the place doesn't it definitely it it it, it is actually yes it is related to stigma and you can imagine and is that deficit narrative again really is uh you're you're not doing it right and imagine the pressure that this puts to autistic people who already don't sleep well and that already exaggerates all the sensory and mental health issues that might coexist. Uh, And also you need to remember that in the family, if uh, the child is not sleeping, automatically that means that all the members of the family are not sleeping as well. I'm glad you raised that because that's such a (laughs) crucial thing that we must not overlook the impact that poor sleep has upon Mm -hmm. families as well. Uh, because, of course, parents of young autistic children, for example, I know many uh, who struggle with sleep, they, they, you know, they also just, their sleep is just often destroyed, you know, and they're just running through the day with very little, and then that impacts upon their ability to care, right, and, and to work, to work to care, and to, 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 to do everything, and then that then, of course, impacts upon the child and the family, and it's mm-hmm. just a vicious cycle so we need to really break it and one way we can break the cycle at least you know from a general way is to address the stigma right on a social level mm-hmm. i mean that's one of many things we can do right and it, it, it really it is really related on so many many different ways to the way we think of autism uh, in the sense that it's very easy to say that um mothers of autistic children are more depressed and anxious than mothers of neurotypical children. Uh, But why is this happening? Stigma is one of the reasons, and and sleep deprivation is definitely one of the other reasons. We're now running running research looking at cortisol levels in moms um, of children who are not sleeping very well. So it's not the presence of the autistic family member as, as it is presented sometimes by research, or by you know the the, the the social narrative around disability, it's not the presence of the autistic person. Is is lack of sleep? Mm. Uh, and imagine when you put that blame aspect, uh, that behavioral blame aspect, to <laughs> to that mother and to that child that have been sleep deprived, that you're doing it wrong, mm. that you're not doing good enough. It, it, it's just. It's really unfair, isn't it? Completely yeah, it's, unfair. It's, it's not a helpful way. Yeah. Of no, no, and then that it's... that increases the risk of self stigma and self blame, and mm-hmm. and that then contributes to everything. So it's really, as you said, a complex, vicious cycle, isn't it? With lots mm-hmm. of things affecting. But sleep, I think, is at the core of it all. If you have good sleep, I think everything can then. But of course, how do we? It goes back how to how do we... do we break that chain? And it's interesting what Kieran was saying about various things that they've tried. That she's tried right here and you were saying that you've tried things like just talking through the day oh so, yeah. yeah i mean the, the, my biggest takeaway just from the conversation we've had so far is um there is no i think i like a lot of parents you do your research and you look at a very prescriptive list of things that you have to explore um in whatever order 
um, however many at a time in order to ensure good sleep. And if you put all those things together and it's not working, you feel you either blame yourself that you haven't done it properly Mm -hmm. or soon enough, or I think there is a tendency, and I mean, and I'm guilty of this, is that you do blame your child. You'd be like, well, you didn't do this or you weren't really listening to the mindfulness, et cetera, et cetera. And you completely ignore and don't give due respect to the fact that that thing is not working for your child. That's why they may not be participating in the mindfulness because they're lying there and they know that it's not working for them. And I think that my takeaway from all this is I think the point you raise about what you can do to reduce the impact of the day, the negative impact of the day, and that may be at odds with whether or not you've taken melatonin. I mean, certainly we had a rule in our house where if you take, um, my son takes melatonin and um, we have a rule that you don't have screens after a certain time, and uh, which isn't a bad thing in general, I think, but we were prescriptive about it. And my son then became very prescriptive, very anxious that if he saw a mobile phone screen as he passed it, it became a big issue. Um, and then obviously, going back to what Georgia was saying, that, that is self-blame. He, I imagine then he will be going back and blaming himself if he has not slept well and saying, oh, I looked at that screen, you know, and that's what's caused me to not have good sleep. And then we reinforce that by giving such a prescriptive list of things he has to do before he goes to sleep. But I think what I'm going to try, and actually I have, certainly during holidays we see this, is that when you devote enough time to reducing the anxiety mm-hmm. and don't focus so much on the individual tool to try and guarantee sleep, but you focus on the reduction of anxiety before sleep, um, that is probably going to, certainly for our family, I imagine, it's going to have a bigger impact on the quality of sleep he's getting and in the long run, how he sees himself as a controller of his own sleep and actually and to understand that he probably doesn't have that much control over how long it takes him to go to sleep um but it's how he can tolerate it and how he can try and catch up and you know but removing the blame essentially um whichever way you do it um but yeah i mean we've we've done it you know i think the list of things and we do not, I mean, I have to say to our listeners, you know, I, we are not in as bad a situation as I, I, certainly a lot of people in our Facebook group have expressed on the on our group. Um, you know, I, I do get good sleep myself. It tends to be his sibling who interrupts my sleep because she tends to wake up in the night. But for, for our son, certainly, it's the time it takes for him to fall asleep. And that of itself, I think, is quite anxiety-inducing for the rest of the family because you want him... You, you then start to foretell, you know, what kind of day he's going to have the next day. Mm. Um, but, yeah, we've done, you know, the mindfulness, the, the apps, the weighted blanket. As I said before, we've used melatonin and we've kind of experimented a little bit. But we, going back to what I said earlier, the debrief, the actual chat before bed, um, is when I see a kind of a look of peace falling over his face, you know. So at least... I know that that has impacted his mindset before sleep. And I guess the other stuff, although useful, is not as important as that, certainly for my son. Um, yeah. It's very, very interesting. I think you're talk- the, the way you talk about him, it's something that I've heard from many families. Uh, is this active mind, full of racing thoughts before falling to bed. And this is definitely one of the conditions that we see and the inability to unwind and let thoughts go. Um, And this is definitely one aspect. And it's very important to see. uh, So looking at the personal accounts of the teenagers, the autistic teenagers, I'm also finding out, apart from what doesn't work, I'm finding finding out a lot of the stuff that do work. And there is expertise in the family. There is expertise um, in the autistic people that we need to pull out and make it more mainstream mm. instead of just thinking of the mainstream hygiene rules that have been made for for neurotypical people. And one, so one aspect is anxiety, as Kira nicely put it. Um, then we need to think... Um, of other levels, like neuro- neurological conditions. For example, uh, is there abnormal circadian rhythm? Mm-hmm. There is for some autistic people, but do 
do do we know much about it? No. Is there um, evidence? So there is evidence. Is there? So that, there, there that is. The, 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 again, we need more research. Mm. Yes, there, it, it could be. Uh, and uh, and there is people in higher risk. People with epilepsy, for example, have even more mm. sleep problems. Uh, there are gender issues. Women have more sleep um, problems than men. Uh, coexisting development and conditions very often is not just autism. It might be ADHD, it might be mm. other conditions. Mm. Um, side effects of medications that people might take, uh, such as stimulants. Mm. Uh, medical problems such as reflex, uh, constipation. Um, so there, there, there are so many levels so that many one factors. needs to yeah. unpack. Yeah. Uh, and to do good feasibility studies, we need big numbers. And we need to look at... Um, at people's uh, circadian rhythm, melatonin levels, and also all the, the, the genes, factors that might affect the melatonin levels. Uh, so we're talking about lots of work ahead mm. in order to, to get answers. Um, however, we know that there are families like Kiran who are trying lots of stuff. Uh, and this is where research plays a role because it can save time. And, and, and energy uh, not to spend time and energy on something that might not work for autistic people which then might have it, further negative effects exactly right? as yeah, you yeah. said self-blame, like self-blaming. Yeah, things like that so if we have the evidence from the research then we can yeah. go straight to that evidence mm-hmm. yeah so just a couple of last things I just want us to just talk through some advice some good advice perhaps or some some supportive things we can say to parents and also autistic people but perhaps we'll start with parents if you don't mind um like what advice some general advice i mean we've talked about it already Mm -hmm. here and there but in summary what advice we would you give to parents that are listening to this right now who have had a bad night of sleep because their child or children or whatever the case is has had a difficult night of sleep you know and they're really struggling you know what what well, maybe they haven't had a bad night. Maybe they're perfectly. The parent has had a perfectly good night of sleep, but their child hasn't. Whatever the case is, mm-hmm. what advice, general advice, would you give? Uh, I guess the first step really is to visit a GP. Mm. Uh, there are nice guidelines about sleep, uh, so we do know that some stuff work. There are the, a nice uh, autism treatment network and the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence have developed clinical guidelines on how to approach and treat sleep problems. And sometimes it's it's really worth it to to get into to speak about sleep with the GP uh, because this might um, help with uh, other conditions, uh, might help with learning, might help with daytime behaviors, and sometimes with we might not have clicked that these are related, but they are actually related. Uh, so I'm not going to go deep into the sleep hygiene advice, although there are many sleep clinics and sleep professionals that some parents might find helpful. Um, the feedback I'm getting at the minute from autistic adults is that sleep hygiene rules don't necessarily work for them. Uh, uh, and uh, there are many gaps between the services. So many times the GPs might not be very well trained in autism. Uh, to understand autistic conditions or they might not know very well sleep and then the people who or the GP might know about autism but but might not know about sleep and you might be referred to a sleep uh, expert who doesn't understand about neurodevelopmental conditions so there is still that gap that we also it's also very necessary to be addressed through research as well I guess the GP is a Mm. very good starting Mm. point yeah I mean as we said earlier that they should also perhaps not feel too terrible if their approaches are not working. I mean, yes. it's a, as you, as you've heard, as I'm sure the listeners will appreciate from listening to you, it's a very complicated mm-hmm. game, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a puzzle, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Really? I mean, how do we disentangle all of the risk and protective factors? What are the interactions? How do, what causes what? What are the cycles? I mean, we, we're learning, aren't we? There is growing evidence, but the the get we are a bit late into the game because the agenda wasn't mm-hmm. set until recently. But there is hope in that the evidence is coming through the work that you're doing and others. Uh, but because it's such a complicated game and because the evidence isn't there, mm-hmm. it's really crucial, isn't it? I think that parents don't beat themselves up about it, or Definitely. anyone beats themselves because yeah. it's a very very difficult game, isn't this it? Because is what we yeah. say to ourselves as well as researchers, it is a difficult game, and is um. 
you know, it's easy to give very general advice, uh, but I'm, I'm not sure we are at that level that we know exactly what works. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And I think, as you said, it's so important for families to, to, to do, as you said, not to beat up themselves. Mm. To, mm. And autistic people that, or any young people who are listening to this, perhaps, or anyone really, older mm-hmm. adults, you know, we, of course, as you said, it's a lifespan issue, you know, that are really struggling with their sleep. Any general advice for them? You know, I mean, obviously, we've touched on things like that, but what would you say? I think that uh, it is worth it to have a look at the sleep, at some sleep hygiene rules in terms of the temperature sometimes. Again, different things are going to... It's very hard to put rules. It's very hard to say to an autistic teenager or adult, uh, you know, as they used to say to us when we were younger, uh, drink your milk and have a bath. It just doesn't work for everybody. Uh, and, And I always come into this... I get almost daily emails from people that w- who want to participate in our sleep research and also looking for active advice from us. And I'm in this difficult situation not being able yet to give them active advice because this is exactly what we're looking at. What are the things that might work uh, in terms of uh, exercise, in terms of daytime uh, behavioral modifications, not of the autistic person, but of their environment? their social environment, their employment environment, their school environment. Um, and eventually, sometimes, maybe we cannot improve our sleep, but we can do all the stuff. Maybe if I know I'm not sleeping very well, maybe I can ask during daytime for more breaks. Maybe I can talk with my teachers about it or with my colleagues. Um, you know, if, we, if, if just now we're not just ready to, to fix sleep, uh, maybe we can uh, create accommodations in our environments mm. so for us to feel more comfortable and I think Kieran said that she's rehearsing uh, and talking with her son it's so important to feel heard to feel understood yeah definitely value uh, that know. voice and speak about it yeah. yeah definitely that's really 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 useful and how might people get in touch with you about uh, participating in their research if they if, if that's what you you would like or or if that's what you need uh, through twitter lila's lab uh, our our lab has a twitter account uh, and also a web page and we're gonna we're now closing the first uh, wave of our teen sleep research and we're about to to publish our data uh, and uh, we're about also to start our adult uh, autism sleep research where we're going to look at uh, the interplay between sleep and mental health and sensory issues, uh, how are these experienced by autistic people, but also what is happening in terms of some biomarkers like cortisol levels, melatonin levels. And uh, we are going to invite autistic people to steer and to co-manage research decisions with us. Uh, they're very welcome to contact us through social media, through our web page. Um, and also, we are going to be in a position to start looking at feasibility studies. Hmm. Okay, that's that's great. And um, uh, Kieran, is there anything else from your side that you wanted to ask? Um, I guess uh, one question I have is that do you... I, I understand that the research is so limited, however, and I, I imagine after your next study, you'll be much more, you're in a better position to answer this, but do you tend to find that the sleep profile of a person is um, consistent throughout their lifespan and so far and what you've seen? So the issues that a child would have, an autistic child would have, um, will still be relevant, say, 10 years later, 20 years later, without intervention. Or do you think, or does it very much fluctuate according to age? That's a great, that's a great question mm-hmm. because I've seen research that shows, for example, speech and language without intervention, so without speech and language therapists uh, or anything else, just you know, general, just carrying on. That over time, the profile does change more often than not. Of course, there's variance uh, towards speech and language improving uh, without intervention. Obviously, at a slower, perhaps level. I've seen research. That suggests that, but it does change without intervention. So I wonder if that's to your in your mind anything you know about happening also with sleep. Will things naturally get better to some degree, or 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 not? Or what's your view of that? 
it really depends on the individual. We have seen that uh, sometimes in the earlier years it can be more difficult to, to uh, the, the very exaggerated sleep problems. Um, however, this is exactly what we're looking at. We're looking at the developmental trajectories and cross-syndrome tra trajectories. Um, because uh, again, we might find syndrome-specific ways of understanding sleep, the, uh, sleep architecture, uh, and sleep um, interventions, sleep support. Uh. So again, it's very hard to put rules, uh, and there is uh, some controversies. Uh, uh, many autistic people will, uh, at some point, improve sleep um, without help, for one, because there's not much help around. Uh, and some people, for example, will use melatonin and they might see that it does improve the sleep latency. It might take them less time. They might fall asleep easier, but they might still have night awakings. That's um, what, that's what, I, my, what I, I know about in terms of melatonin mm -hmm, that I've heard from many, many parents. Mm -hmm. We've never used it for, uh, for our children, but um, uh, just because we're lucky in that they haven't been too negatively impaired by poor sleep. But I know lots of people, including Kieran, as you say, that have tried melatonin and, and it, it can be, I mean, this is of course all anecdotal, but it can be, from what I hear, quite effective in getting a child to sleep, but then not necessarily having any impact in maintaining sleep. Is that your view? Yeah, and, and, yes, I mean, and honestly, the, I mean, again, it's uh, speaking to what Georgia was saying before, is that it it's complete, depends on the child, and also we found with melatonin, um, whilst at one point that was our saviour, you know, we, we kind of couldn't believe had the impact it had on our son at a certain age. You have to monitor it so carefully um, because then you uh, your dosages do have to change over time. So it's certainly something to be embarked upon with support from a paediatrician and to really look closely at each age, whether or not it's having the optimum effect that it should have or whether you're just giving it, you know, the dose is being given just, you know... Um, without change unnecessarily mm. um and I, I guess the other the kind of other aspect of my question was really the one thing i think i haven't done directly is actually talk to an autistic adult about what works for them uh, which i guess is the whole point of your research as well it would save us all a lot of time um, but whether there is any um whether it, there is merit in actually say through a Facebook forum like our own or through our own contacts to speak to an, a, an autistic adult or a teen if you're if you're the parent of a young child to see what works for them as an adult um, and maybe there are some nuggets in there mm. um, that can be used you know and and spoken from a, a place that your child can relate to mm. um, you know that just reminded me that we, on the 19th of June, a bit of self-promotion, we're having our open sleep day at UCL and we're hoping to have a panel of sleep researchers, but also uh, sleep experts by experience. Uh, and um, I'm hoping to have there uh, John Adams. John Adams and Cos Michael are co-researchers, really, uh, in this uh, model of sleep work that we're aiming to co-produce with autistic community uh, we're hoping to have to hear the perspective of parents the perspective of autistic adults so again through social media we will advertise very soon maybe it's a good chance for some parents to come attend uh, we're going to have uh, finalized by then our teen sleep data as well so we're going to be more able to share more data uh, and and I think even I think your your child probably knows uh, awful lot about what helps them to sleep. Um, I have visited almost one hundred um, bedrooms through this research, and I've spoken with teenagers, and they've taken photos of their daytime and and, and night routines, and I've spoken with teenagers who like to have um, the fun on. Uh, and I was thinking, oh, that's for the temperature, because sleep hygiene says we need low temperature. That was only my assumption. They loved it because it was um, uh, it, uh, because of the sensory issues. Uh, it was uh, a noise that they liked. Like it a helped white them. Noise. Yeah, were, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And it helped them to fall asleep. Um, I've met uh, teenagers who were telling me that um, certain times. Uh, uh, depending on how was their day, they might, you know, they have ob observed the patterns of what helps them or not helps them. So if they had a very stressful day, they might like to 
to to have um, ice cubes, to crunch ice cubes for 20 minutes before they go to bed. Again, it's related with, this is not a sleep hygiene, definitely. It's not in the sleep hygiene um, rules I've read, but it's something that works for the person. Uh, and if the moms don't get uh, too anxious about it, hmm. like, this is very weird, this might not be good this is not something i've read in the newspapers or in the it's unusual uh, yeah, yeah it's unusual really so it's about embracing some of the unusual stuff mm. that um cannot harm the child mm. but can actually help them to fall mm. asleep that's really good advice so so within reason and safety obviously of safety course. uh to, to sort of experiment mm -hmm. and, and look at patterns and see what works and maybe embrace something that's not typical or usual if the, there seems to be rewards and, and it's working mm -hmm. right and and to have some confidence in doing that is that what you're saying yes i think uh families should have confidence because they already know a lot a lot about autism a lot about their children and they know better than we do their sleep profiles mm. so, so trust trust yourself yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And trust your child as well, I guess mm -hmm. that's the, mm -hmm. the, if you put it in their court and ask them what works for them and, and really be, make it like an experiment, you know, what yeah. works, let's try different things out, but you, you know, allow them to guide you. I think that certainly would be a good mindset for, for us to have in our family, um, because then you're in it together. You're not just forcing something on your child, which they don't know, they, they know probably doesn't work, but they're going along with it just to, you know, um, yeah for the sake of keeping the peace really um but yeah so, that, i think that's great advice coming this comes right back around to the beginning then to take a participatory yeah. approach <laughs> to to, <laughs> to this would be uh, would be useful and value each other's voices and experiences and 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 confident have that confidence uh and that sort of stuff so Thank you very much. What I'll do is I'll link in at the within the profile within the episode's description the the websites and also your Twitter handles because you are quite active on yeah, yeah, Twitter yeah. and so it's a good it is a good way to mm -hmm. get in touch with you and and that and I'd love to have you back on if you wouldn't mind to talk more about uh sleep perhaps we can bring uh John Adams to to the table and talk with him about it and Cos Michael of course Fantastic. who I who I know very well and uh, you maybe have a group group chat chat about uh, uh, these issues. But also, of course, we should also highlight that you you have expertise in, like I said at the outset, in sibling well being, and that you're doing a lot of research on on this. And your PhD was mm -hmm. about that, wasn't it? Um, so it'd be great to have you along again to talk about sibling well being if you would, if you if you'd be uh, happy to. So um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very, very much Thank for you. your time. And I, uh, I really, really enjoyed it. I learned a lot listening to you. So thank you. And thanks thank very you much, both. Kieran. Thank You're you, welcome. Kieran. Thank right. you. Okay, I will sign off. Thanks very much.